Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service this morning. Our themes that we picked our songs out is sovereignty and listening to truth. So let's stand and worship God together as those themes ring through the songs. Thank you. 
next one is a new one, but the words um, we think fit really well with um, where we're going. So if you want to jump in on the second verse, it's not a hard song. It's a, a Getty song. So their songs usually follow a regular kind of hymn sort of sound.
Yeah, sometimes we have to be very patient waiting for God, but uh, over time it works out to be patient because He has a plan for us and uh, it always works out towards the good. And uh, sometimes it's hard for us to remember that, <laughs> especially me. <laughs> Our call to worship this morning is in your bulletin, if you want to read with me. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise Him, you who serve the Lord. I know the greatness of the Lord, that our Lord is greater than my other God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you again for another beautiful morning. Thank you that the weather has changed a little bit warmer, that we can uh, do some things outside again. Just pray that you'll be with us throughout the day, uh, through the morning worship service. Be with Glenn as he uh, teaches us out of your word what you have us to hear today. Be with us this afternoon in the annual meeting that we can... Uh, uh, learn what the church has done and maybe we can uh, figure out where, where our next move is and where the direction of this church is going. Just pray that you'll be with that meeting this afternoon. Amen. This morning is from Acts 21. If you have your Bibles and you want to look up Acts 21, we're going to read verses 15 through 40. After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law, and they have all been told about you and that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what, you have been, what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defied this holy place. 
For they had previously seen him with Trophimius, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut, and they were, they were seeking to kill him. Word came, as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the, the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when they had came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob and the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when Paul had given him permission, or sorry, and when he had been given permission, Paul, standing up in the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense now that I make before you. Thanks, Chris. <clears throat> Let's ask God to guide us and guide our thoughts as we go through this passage. It's your word to us, Lord. We know that your word is always relevant. It is always alive and active and speaks. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would help us from this passage this morning to see what it is that you want us to learn, and what the lesson is for us, and help us, Lord, just to understand it. Uh, help me, Lord, to speak it as you'd want it spoken. And uh, we just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In preparing for this sermon, I came across a quote uh, from a lady named Mashiko Katkutani. I think that's how you say it, but I don't know because I've never heard it said before. <laughs> I know nothing about this lady except that she was a literary critic working for the New York Times. And I don't know when she said this, but the book I found it in was published in 2008. So obviously it was said before then. Anyway, here's the quote. The very amount of information that computers make available threatens us with cognitive overload. Overwhelmed with facts, people tend to mistake data for truth, knowledge for wisdom. With a mindset fixed on information, our attention span shortens, we collect fragments 
we become poor in overall meaning. And we can see with the explosion of social media since 2008, <laughs> the scenario that she described is likely thousands of times worse. I gave this sermon the title, Living by a Good Understanding of the Truth. Truth is important. Truth is vitally important. But because of the scenario that I just mentioned, truth for many is a very elusive thing. The passage we come to today in our study of the book of Acts records the Apostle Paul and his companions making the final leg of their trip from Caesarea to the, to the city of Jerusalem and then what happened in the week or so following that. So we're in Acts 21, 15 to 40, the passage I've just read. And you may be wondering how I got to that title, Living by a Good Understanding of the Truth, from this passage. And I want to tell you, first of all, that I, I struggled with this passage. Uh, I struggled with what's the message for us? What's the lesson in here for us? And uh, I, I wasn't sure how to put it into a, a sermon format, what the lessons are. And as I read and reread and reread and reread this passage and put it in the context of what we've already seen leading up to this point from the previous chapters in the book of Acts, a couple of things kind of rose to my mind, or rose to the top as I looked at it and studied it. And the first thought I had when, I, when those thoughts arose to the top of my, of my thinking, I said, well, those are kind of random things. They didn't seem to be a connection between them. But then as I thought it through some more and studied it and prayed through it more, I, thought, I saw there, there is a connection. And that connection is truth. This passage relates how Paul and his companions went to Jerusalem, despite the warnings. We looked at that last week. Uh, when you're looking at the first part of chapter 21, Paul had been warned that bad things would happen when he went to Jerusalem. But Paul went anyway. Because he was convinced that the Holy Spirit was directing him to go there. And bad things happened. That stood out to me. And I see a lesson there about the truth of the sovereignty of God. And then another thing that stood out to me in this narrative is three times people acted out on assumptions that they had. And all three of those assumptions were false assumptions. And so that to me also speaks of the importance of truth. And making sure of the truth. So let's quickly just go through this passage that was just read for us. And then we'll... Uh, we'll make the application to us. As you start reading in verse 15 of, of Acts chapter 21, uh, we see that there was a group of Christians there from Caesarea that decided to go with Paul to Jerusalem. Uh, they knew there was trouble ahead last week in the first part of chapter 21. We see them actually advising Paul not to go because they knew the trouble was ahead. But Paul was determined to go, so a few of them decided to go with him. And they knew, as I said, they knew trouble was ahead. And they had some connections that apparently they thought might be able to protect, to protect Paul. They knew a guy. <laughs> the guy's name was, I don't know how you say that word, Mason, Manason, I'm not sure. 
But they knew him, uh, that he would welcome him, them and let them stay at his place. Now we don't know anything more about this man than what is written here. He's a native of Cyprus, but now he's seemingly in Jerusalem or close to Jerusalem. And he's a disciple of long standing. He's likely one of the first converts to Christianity, perhaps even from the day of Pentecost, where 3,000 were saved, was recorded there back in Acts chapter 2. So they got to Jerusalem, and the next day Paul and his companions went to see James. James was the leader of the church at Jerusalem, and who was kind of the mother church of all the rest. <laughs> and James was the leader of that church. And so they met with James, and also not just with James, but the elders of the church there at Jerusalem. They all met together. They were warmly welcomed and received by James and the elders, and they gave a report of all that God had done among the Gentiles during Paul's missionary travels. They all greatly praised God for the many who had come to Christ. Then James and the elders said to Paul, we foresee a problem here. We have in Jerusalem thousands of Jews who have believed in Jesus. And they're Christians. But they are all very zealous for the law. They very much believe that it is still important, even though they believe Jesus as the Messiah, it's still important to keep all the laws and traditions that they were raised under. And they're very, very strong in that belief and that conviction. The problem was that they had been hearing that Paul has been teaching all the Jews who are living outside of Israel. Remember, everywhere Paul went, in the journeys in the Gentile nations, he went first to the Jewish synagogue to preach the gospel, because there's Jews in all these cities. They're called the Jewish diaspora. That's what scholars call it. <laughs> Jews have been dispersed throughout the nations. So Paul had gone to all these synagogues, and uh, so they had heard, the Jews in Jerusalem had heard, that Paul, when he's preaching to the, in those synagogues, to the Jews out in the Gentile countries, He'd been teaching those Jews to leave the laws and leave the teachings of Moses and to not circumcise their children and to not keep the customs. Well, that was not true. Paul had never taught that. But that's what they heard Paul was teaching. And now they're going to hear that Paul is here in Jerusalem. And there's going to be trouble. <laughs> How should they meet it? That's what they're facing. Well, James and the elders of the church of Jerusalem, they had an idea. There were four men among them who were under a vow. And seemingly this is a, a temporary Nazarite vow, uh, a Jewish vow. Apparently they had contracted some sort of ceremonial defilement and had to undergo a purification rite in the temple. And that required a period of seven days. On the seventh day they shaved their heads, which brought the, the purification rite to an old... To, to an end, and then they, on the eighth day, they brought a sacrifice and offering to the temple on the eighth day. So their advice to Paul was to join these four men in this purification ceremony and to pay the expenses for, for their offerings. That way, James and the elders said, all would see that Paul was still keeping the laws of Moses and the ancestral customs, and they would see that there was no truth to the rumors that they had been hearing about what Paul was preaching to the Jews outside of Israel. And maybe that would put them all at ease and there would be no trouble. So that's the idea here. 
And then James and the elders take time to reassure Paul that regarding the Gentile Christians, uh, they had already written and made a decision about that and written to the churches about that. That was back in Acts 15, if you remember. Gentile Christians don't have to obey all the Jewish laws, especially those ceremonial and ritualistic laws. That had been decided, and that isn't what this is about. So, Paul agreed to do this, go along with this, uh, to try to appease the situation. And so they went, and when the week was almost over, then the trouble hit. There were Jews in Jerusalem from Asia. And they were likely there for the Feast of Pentecost. Now remember back a while ago that Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost? So I'm assuming he did, and that this was during this week of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost. So the Jews from Asia, likely there for that feast. They recognized Paul. Because Paul had been in Asia, obviously. The city of Ephesus was a major city in Asia, in the Roman province of Asia. And Paul had been there for over two years, uh, teaching the gospel there. We've already covered that. But the Jews there in Asia had caused Paul a fair bit of grief as well. So anyway, these Jews from Asia, they're there, and they recognize Paul. They saw him in the temple. And so they grabbed him, and they yelled out in verse 28, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. Talking about the temple. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. <coughs> so here again, acting on another false assumption. They had seen Paul in Jerusalem with Trophimus. He was a Gentile from Ephesus. So he was there and Paul was with him in Jerusalem. And now they saw Paul in the temple. And so they assumed that Paul had brought this Gentile into the inner temple area. That's the accusation. That had never happened. That was an assumption that they made. Gentiles were allowed in the outer courts of the temple, but not in the inner courts. That was punishable by death. So that's why they wanted to kill Paul, because of the assumption that he brought a Gentile into the inner court of the temple. And so a huge riot started. They dragged Paul out of the inner temple court, closed the gates. They were commencing to beat him. And at this point, word got out to the commander of the Roman cohort. Now, just to set the stage for you, this temple area was quite a large area. The outer court was quite a large area around the building itself, which was kind of more in the middle, which included the inner court. Uh, but there, at, of those outer grounds, at one corner of those outer grounds, there was a tower at that temple yard. So it was very close, and the, the commander... Uh, and the Roman cohort, or the Roman soldiers, that was kind of their home ground, this tower. That's where they kind of were based. So the so word got out of this to the commander of the Roman cohort. And as I said, they were located in this tower at the corner there, the temple yard. He was right close. So the commander grabbed his soldiers, ran down the steps to the mob. And when the people of the mob saw the Roman soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander seized Paul had him handcuffed or said bound with two chains or whatever uh, <coughs> and then started asking everybody what's going on here some shouted one thing some shouted another thing it was just mass confusion typical mob mentality and so he ordered Paul to be brought back up to the barracks 
while he tried to figure out what was going on. But the mob kept trying to pull Paul away from the soldiers and wanted to proceed with killing him. To the point where the soldiers actually had to carry Paul to the stairs. And as they're going up the stairs, I take it, Paul asked to speak to the commander. And obviously Paul spoke in Greek. And the commander was surprised to hear Paul speaking in Greek. Verse 27, sorry, verse 37 to 38 tell us that the commander had assumed, here again another false assumption, the commander had assumed that Paul was the Egyptian who a few years back had caused a big revolt and led a group of about 4,000 men who were called the Assassins. Uh, this was a group of people that were really hostile toward Rome and Roman rule, didn't like it. And, uh, and they carried daggers in their robes, concealed daggers in their robes, and they would kind of go around secretly and try to take out with their swords uh, Roman, Roman rulers and Jews that were, that were friendly to Rome. And so that's why they were called assassins. Uh, that had been a few years back. This Egyptian had kind of disappeared into the wilderness. And the Roman commander thought that Paul was him and had come back to cause more trouble. And Paul assured him, no, I'm not that Egyptian. Uh, he's a Jew, originally from Tarsus in Cilicia. It's a major city. And he asked if he could speak to the people. And so the commander gave him permission. And Paul, standing there on the stairs, motioned to the mob with his hands. And when they quieted down, he started speaking to them in the Hebrew dialect. Now, some of your translations say Aramaic. Um, some just say Hebrew. Um, Hebrew and Aramaic are very closely related languages. At this time, um, it wasn't the ancient Hebrew that the Jews would have talked or spoken hundreds of years ago. It was more the Aramaic who had kind of taken over with all the conquests of, of the land of Israel over the years. Uh, very closely. Maybe a dialect, maybe, I don't know. It, it was a complicated time. You think we live in complicated times. All these different languages, groups were there in Jerusalem at that, at that time. And educated people could speak in many different languages. They were all fluent in all of these. Uh, well, not all, but the educated ones were. And so if you sneak a peek down to chapter 22 and verse 2, uh, the Jews there... This people of the mob, upon hearing Paul speak in Hebrew, or this Hebrew dialect, whatever it was, that caused them to really get quiet and to listen. Well, we're going to stop there. Because <laughs> that brings us to the end of the chapter. And we'll look at that uh, rest of it next week. So let's look at the application. It's about truth. And the need to know the truth, and to live by the truth. We as Christians need to, be, need to live in the knowledge and in the exercise of the truth. And we can better do this by learning the lessons that come out in this, in this passage. So just two lessons. And uh, as I said, I struggled with this passage, but these are kind of what came to the top in my mind as I studied it and prayed. Number one, lesson number one. There's a lesson here on the sovereignty of God. A lesson on the sovereignty of God. I want to back up here and take a look at the, at the bigger picture. 
history remind us of what's all going on and what all went before on before to bring us to this point. So turn back in your Bibles to chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 and verse, verse 21. Paul's in Ephesus here. Acts 19.21 And after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, And after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul had a plan in mind, and obviously he believed it was the plan that the Holy Spirit had given him. This was a Spirit-directed plan. He needed to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia. That was where the Spirit was directing Paul. Now go ahead to chapter 20, verse 16. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul is headed for Jerusalem. This is now some months later, after... What we read there in chapter 19. Paul's headed for Jerusalem. Because that's where the Spirit directed him to go. And as this verse tells us, he wants to get there to Jerusalem in time for the Feast of Pentecost. Now, last week, in the first 14 verses of chapter 21, we saw that as Paul neared Jerusalem, he started receiving warnings that bad things are going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He would be seized and bound and handed over to the Gentiles. And those weren't just warnings coming from anybody. Those were warnings that came through the Holy Spirit. And on the basis of those warnings, which came directly from the Holy Spirit, as I said, Paul's companions and the Christians who were there where Paul was in Caesarea visiting them, those Christians and Paul's companions advised Paul not to go to Jerusalem at all. The Holy Spirit is warning you, Paul. This is what's going to happen. You'd be better off not even to go to Jerusalem. And they begged him not to go. But Paul did not take their advice. He had been directed by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He knew bad things were going to happen when he got there. But he had to obey his calling and the direction that he received from the Holy Spirit. We saw that last week. So we see in this passage today, he got to Jerusalem and the very things that had prophesied, been prophesied by the Holy Spirit to him that were going to happen, did happen. He was apprehended, he was taken by Roman soldiers, and as we're going to see in the chapters ahead in Acts, these events will drastically change Paul's direction, Paul's future ministry. From now on, Paul's going to spend more time in jail than anywhere else. He will have a very important ministry and vital ministry in spite of that, as we're going to see. But it will be different than what he had anticipated. So how do you put that all together? The Holy Spirit tells Paul to go to Jerusalem. Then the Holy Spirit tells Paul that bad things are going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. How do you reconcile those two things? Because if you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, bad things shouldn't happen to you, right? <laughs> you see, that's the assumption so many of us as Christians make. 
if I'm sensitive to God's leading and obey Him, then things will just flow for me. And I can go through life without any major trials or troubles. And that's a wrong assumption. As we see in this passage, God is sovereign. He led Paul to Jerusalem and he allowed Paul to go through the trials and troubles that happened when he got there. He even forewarned Paul that was going to happen. The arrest, the chains, the prison, all part of God's plan. God had a purpose in all of that. So the first lesson in this is a lesson on God's sovereignty. God has a plan. And things may seem con contradictory to us with our frail and limited human understanding. And those things that seem contradictory to us are actually a part of God's plan and purpose. And that's the truth we as Christians need to come to grips with. The truth of the sovereignty of God. So if you are following God's leading and living a life pleasing to God and doing what he wants you to do and things start going bad and trials and troubles come your way, don't jump to the conclusion that you are doing something wrong. Now, maybe you are. <laughs> maybe that's the reason the bad things are happening. But maybe not either. You wouldn't, shouldn't just jump to that conclusion that you're doing something wrong. God has never promised a life free from troubles and trials. Quite the opposite, in fact. Following God's leading and being the person he wants you to be will very likely include troubles and trials. It's all part of God's plan. He has a purpose even in the troubles and trials. In fact, history has shown that often God does his greatest work through the times of troubles and trials. So the first lesson is a lesson on the sovereignty of God. And that truth is a truth that all of us Christians need to live by. God is sovereign. He has a plan and a purpose that is likely beyond our ability to comprehend. We just need to keep on doing what we know to be right. What we know to be what God wants us to do. And go through the trials and allow God to use it as he wills. Secondly, a lesson on assumptions and truth. A lesson on assumptions and truth. As perhaps you noticed when this passage was read, and as I already mentioned, there are three occasions in this passage where people are acting on false assumptions. The first is when the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, they all believed that Paul was teaching all the Jews in each of the Gentile synagogues he visited and taught in during his missionary travels, that he, Paul was teaching that they no longer needed to obey the Old Testament law and follow the customs of their people that had been, they'd been following for generations, even to the point of telling them not to circumcise their children. And because of those assumptions, they were very leery of Paul and were of the opinion that he needed to be stopped. He needed to be canceled in today's vernacular. Now, that assumption was not true. Paul did teach that the Gentile converts that they did not need to keep the ceremonial and ritual laws of the Jews because they're not Jews. In accordance with what the decision of the apostles was as recorded in Acts 15. So Paul did teach that the Gentiles didn't need to keep those. 
But he never taught the Jewish converts that they should stop following those Jewish laws and customs. But you know how things get contorted through hearsay and suspicion. Thus the false assumptions on the part of the Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem. That's the first case of a false assumption. Second is in verse 27 through 29. When the Jews from Asia caused that riot in the temple courtyard. Apparently these were not Jewish Christians. These were Jews who had come from Asia. And they had likely hear, heard Paul teach in the synagogue of the cities of Asia and had rejected the gospel of Jesus. They had turned against Paul. So they're hostile toward Paul already, more than likely. So now here at Jerusalem, they've come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, these Jews, and they see Paul in the temple. And because they had previously seen Paul in the city with this Trophimus guy, this Gentile, also from Ephesus, they assumed that Paul had brought Trophimus into the inner courts of the temple with him. Like I said, Gentiles weren't allowed in the inner courts. Uh, that was punishable by death. But that was a false assumption. Paul had never brought Trophimus into the inner courts of the temple. But they went with their false assumptions, fueled by their pre-existing suspicions and hostility toward Paul, and started this riot in an attempt to put Paul to death. That's recorded there in verses 30 to 36. So that's the second occasion where people acting on false assumption. Third occasion is on the part of the Roman commander. Verses 37 to 39. He falsely assumed that Paul was this Egyptian rebel who had led a group of assassins some years ago, as I already explained. Uh, Josephus actually records that event. Um, Josephus, a Jewish historian of that time period. This Egyptian had kind of disappeared, but now the Roman commander assumed that this guy the mob was trying to kill was this Egyptian come back to cause trouble again. But that was a false assumption. So in studying this passage this week, these three events stood out to me. They kind of rose to the top as I studied it and read it. Three occasions of people, for whatever reason, coming to false assumptions and believing their false assumptions to be true, and on the basis on least one occasion, acting out on the basis of those false assumptions. And I just looked at that and I thought, man, the trouble you can cause if you go with false assumptions without checking to see if they're true or not. Friends, we as Christians need to be people of truth. In fact, we as Christians, we kind of pride ourselves in that. We believe the Bible is the word of God. It's, we believe that's absolute truth. We teach that. We teach Christians to live according to that truth in the Bible. We try to teach people not to fall for error. Be people of the truth. And yet at the same time, history has shown that as evangelicals, we are pretty quick to fall for conspiracy theories and rumors that are not based on factual truth, but are based on suspicion and false assumptions. One story that comes to my mind when I was in Bible school, this was in the early 80s, <coughs> and this kind of covers a time period from what happened in the late 70s and into the early 80s. 
there was a cult that was pretty strong uh, called the Unification Church, um, started by Sun Young Moon. And uh, because of his name, Sun Young Moon, his followers began being called Moonies. Some of you remember the Moonies, <laughs> or, or have heard of the Moonies. No? Am I the only one that remembers that? <laughs> oh, yeah. The Moonies. So that was a cult that, that was quite prominent at that time, and uh, we as Christians were kind of, be careful about that cult. You know, there's some truth to there, but there's a lot of error, too. And uh, Procter & Gamble, manufacturing company, had a symbol. Their symbol was a half moon with kind of a face on it in a circle. <laughs> so the assumptions that a lot of good evangelical Christians came to was Procter and Gamble are supporting the Moonies because they have that moon symbol. False assumption was made that Procter and Gamble were Moonies. And we should not buy, as Christians, we should not buy any of Procter and Gamble products. They produce all kinds of laundry detergents and soaps and paper pampers, I think, and all kinds of stuff that they, they produce. It was a false assumption. But many evangelicals fell for that and pushed that, all based on false assumptions, and Procter and Gamble had to do a fair bit of damage control to try to convince the world, especially in the States, <laughs> that they were not Moonies. <laughs> Christians can do a lot of damage when we start going down those roads of false assumptions. The past few years have seen a proliferation of conspiracy theories surface. And with the aid of social media, they have been taught as truth by people who sound good and have impressive titles. And many come to believe that these conspiracy theories are absolute truth. And yet, many of these theories are based on false assumptions. There's a lesson here for us. As Christians, let's not get caught up and follow along and propagate things that are merely suspicions and assumptions and not have solid truth behind them. We, of all people, as Christians, need to be people of the truth. There's only one source of absolute truth in this world, and it's not Facebook. <laughs> it isn't some person with an axe to grind that starts a YouTube channel. <laughs> no, it's the Bible. The Bible is our source of absolute truth. Let's stick to the truth of the Bible and push that truth and not get caught up in side issues that may or not, may not be true and at best are just that, our side issues. I'm going to stop with that before I say something I probably shouldn't. But There's a lesson for us here about false assumptions and truth. Let's be people who don't run wild with ideas that in a reality are just suspicions and false assumptions like the examples here in this passage. Let's be guided, people who are guided by the truth, which ultimately is found in the word of God. So therefore we see from this passage some lessons to follow so we can live in the knowledge and exercise of the truth. And those lessons are, number one, a lesson on the sovereignty of God. That's a fundamental truth that we need to live by. God is sovereign. He has a plan which he is carrying out, which in all likelihood will bring with it trouble and trials into our lives as we follow him. But he is in control, and that's a truth we need to live by. And secondly, there's a lesson on assumptions and truth. 
let's not be guilty of falling for ideas and teachings and movements that are based on false assumptions and suspicion. Let's stick with the truth of God's word and obey that. So as we come to the end of this, I, like I said, I struggled with the sermon this morning. <laughs> to put it together, I'm not sure who it's for. But God's word is always relevant. My preaching professor at Bible college always told me that, well, told us as his students, that every passage in the Bible is preachable. You can preach a sermon on any and every passage in the Bible because it's all God's word. So I don't know what the lesson is for us here today or for you personally. That's what our time of silence is about, where you can just open your heart out to God and say, God, what are you trying to say to me here? Is there a word for me? And if it is, what is it? So I'll give you a time of silence and just listen to what God may say to you. Amen. Music team, please. Let's stand and sing together.
Thank you for your singing.